So you heard a song, you just heard a chorus. Now normally we pick top 40 type songs, but I've asked them specifically to play this song. I'd like you to sing the chorus again for everybody. Will you do that? Just the chorus. Just the chorus. Here now. That, that part. Thank you. Here now. All I know is I know that you are here now. Still my heart, let your voice be all I the opportunity to come together this morning and I thank you that you continue to speak to us and that we're not left in complete silence you know devoid of knowing who you are and what you've done for us and what you expect from us in our worship response to to who you are so thank you for giving us the scriptures thank you for giving us the ability to read so that we can study and so that we can learn and uh, we come together so that we can know how and know, actually to know you better through your words. So you sent your Holy Spirit who has authored the scriptures, who leads, who instructs, who guides, who convicts, and who speaks to us. And we're grateful for that. And we come with a heart of gratitude and help us keep our hearts and minds open to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a lot of similarities between a church and a movie theater. Both facilities are set apart for specific purposes. The central uh, visual focus is a stage, right? Uh, or a screen. The main stage is often elevated uh, for improved visuality. I don't even know if that is a word, but I made one. The audience is seated in rows in both, are they not? Facing towards the front. Each member, when you think about it, uh, members of the cast, be it actors or priests, however you want to put it, uh, or preachers, uh, we have a set script. We have specific movements that we perform during our rituals, right? Whether it is a drama, whether it is liturgy, liturgy. The lighting in the sanctuary or stage is often brighter than the other parts, and those who take part in the drama wear a costume for the most part, right? You can go to a Lord of the Rings opener or a Star Wars opener and you'll know what I'm talking about. Or you can check out the certain religious clothes with different denominational fellowships. It's there. It all adds a visuality to the space. You with me? So theater or church is a place where space is created for an unfolding drama. Now, movies serve as church for those who don't go to church. I'm convinced of that. There are those who go to the movies and they get their, their theology from movies. Like it or not, it's true. And so many people will actually never darken the door of a church, but they're going to watch endless movies with huge theological implications that are staring them right in the face. Leonard Sweet encouraged the church when he wrote this. He said, the best way to diffuse the principalities and powers of postmodern culture is not to escape from it, 
but we need to learn its language, we need to master its media, we need to engage it on a higher level, and that is why we do God in the movies here at Seoul. Are you with me? Now, Marshall McLuhan is considered by one to be uh, by many to be one of the chief theorists of mass communication in our time. He's a Canadian. Uh, you guys are way ahead of me. Back up, please. Or maybe not. Okay, so my bad, sorry. Um, his ideas stimulated thousands of artists, intellectuals, journalists, and they still continue to read his work and, and, and ponder his claims. And he saw the powerful impact of technology and the techno technological change on the world. And he showed us a way to, uh, to explain our world and society through technology. It becomes the voice. And he contends this. He says that all media, in and of themselves, and regardless of the messages you communicate, they exert a compelling influence on man and society. So we are influenced by the media that we take in. And such is the case with movies. So whether you like it or not, a theater is the greatest pulpit in North America. And people watch movies to get their story, and the preachers, which we call producers and directors, are communicating a worldview, they're communicating philosophical systems, they're communicating morals and values, whether we agree with them or not. They have the microphone. So what do God and movies have in common? Well, I'd venture to say that in Romans 1.20, it says that there's a lot in common. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen. You sang about it with that one song just before the announcements today. Everything in creation will teach you about God if you pay attention. And every story that has been told has this thread of God's story that is sort of running through it or counter to it. And so if we open our eyes, we're going to see God's story and we're going to see our story intermingling. And now enter Martin Scorsese. How is that for a transition? Now, Scorsese is probably not the first name to come to mind when you think about someone to direct a film, film about faith, right? Uh, and it, the fact is, he doesn't shove his Catholic faith down your throat in every film he makes. It's actually, it's quite the opposite to the point of blasphemy, if you remember The Last Temptation of Christ. Just a side note, Scorsese is interesting. At one point, he actually considered joining the priesthood instead of becoming a director. Go figure that one out. Now, the film we're looking at today is called Silence. But what's so remarkable about Silence is that it's unapologetically about faith. It's about persecution, and it has complicated theological questions, and yet never once does it feel hokey or does it feel forced. It, it's not the sort of bait-and-switch act of proselytization that we, we witness when we watch so-called Christian films. Sorry, just speaking the truth. Let's just say it's a film about faith rather than a faith-based film. And as we look at this movie, we're going to see it approaches faith in a very breathtaking, beautiful way, but also in a very gut-wrenching way. In a way few films ever have. So I scoured, I, I, the, the, I scoured the internet, and here's the preacher, I mean the producer, communicating his worldview, his philosophical system, his morals and values to his audience. Watch a portion of this interview. For a long period of time, I was fascinated by uh, stories of the missionaries uh, when I was about eight or nine, ten years old, and I wanted to become a married old missionary. Well, I thought this would be an amazing picture to make at some point. At first, I, I didn't really immediately know, while I was reading the book, how to realize it, make it real. There's a few scenes in the film that... Uh, that affect me, there's no doubt. One of the uh, martyrs uh, in the ocean. And while we were there, you could feel it. When we were shooting it, I'm telling you, you could feel it. Well, I think it's the depth of faith. It's where one, it's the, the struggle for the very essence of faith. The vehicle that one takes towards faith can be very helpful, it's the church, the institution of the church. Sacraments, uh, this all can be very, but ultimately, it's it has to be yourself. 
do we have that kind of faith here in America? Does our culture reflect that? I don't know if it does. I, I did. I thought for years about other ways, other ways of thinking, other political system, economics, uh, other religious as other religions, you know. But my roots are here, so uh, I hope that there was a place that I could explore those thoughts and those contradictions in an intelligent way that's still within the uh, Christian faith. What's that process like for you spiritually? It's a pilgrimage. We're still on the road. That's never going to end. Now, how many of you have actually seen the movie Silence by raise of hand? All right. Are you telling me that this Netflix generation hasn't watched this movie? Well, it's R-rated. You need to watch this movie. You need to watch this movie. It's a, Scorsese uh, did an adapt, adaptation of the 1966 Japanese novel by Shusaku Endo, set in 17th century Japan. Catholic Christianity is under persecution. This is a historical... Um, uh, even though it's, it's, it's fictional, there's aspects of truth to it. What do they call that? A historical fiction. That's what it is. I had a brain fart there. Sorry. So it's a historical fiction, and uh, uh, the Catholic Christianity is under attack. Actually happened. Faith is all outlawed. Believers are being persecuted without question. And so when the Jesuit missionary, Father Ferreira, who's played by Liam Neeson, uh, he goes missing af uh, after faithfully sending reports home back to Portugal, two of his foreign-born students, uh, Sebastian Rodriguez, played by Andrew Garfield, who we'll look at when we do Hacksaw Ridge, and Francisco Garupe, played by Adam Driver, uh, they're determined to co covertly enter Japan and find word of Father Ferreira. This next clip actually sets the scene to the entire film. Watch this. So from the very beginning, silence confronts the complicated reality of missionary work in the 17th century. Quote, thousands are dead of, because of what we brought them. When is the last time you've heard a missionary on film or anywhere, for, for that matter, admit that? You know, and that's just the beginning. This entire movie is an unflinching look at some of the most challenging and darkest parts of faith. And it seemed like nearly every scene raised some sort of new theological question, only to leave it unresolved as the film raced on to the next challenge. Even last night, I didn't realize, I'm watching it again last night, and, and I'm sitting there outside, and it's like quarter to two in the morning, and I finally go back inside, and Sharon's going, what are you doing? The whole neighborhood's listening to you watching it on your phone. Like, I'm just oblivious. I'm just taken with it. Because there's always new questions. As you open this Pandora's box about theology, it's right here in this film. And the one thing virtually all Christians in, in eventually struggle with, whether, uh, whether we struggle in movies or in books or through Sunday morning sermons, is our inability not to not give an answer to every question, Right? Why is God doing this? Well, this is what the scripture... No, shut up. Right? You with me? And it's true, we crave answers. We do. And sometimes answers are needed, but sometimes questions are needed more. Questions that don't have a neatly packaged answer that warms our hearts to the moment we hear them because life, because actually when you think about it, real life simply isn't a 30-minute sitcom that it has, has to have all the loose ends come together and it's tied up before the credits roll. That's not life. Now, what follows is a brutal exploration of faith and doubt, of culture and colonialism, of violence and religion as Father Rodriguez navigates the desperation of the Japanese villages, the suffering that they experience, the, the looming silence he finds in isolation and in persecution or torture. Now, before we move on, I, I, I need to say this. We have to watch this film with a different set of lenses on. Okay, we need to watch it through the lenses of the Catholic faith. Now, some of you, oh, what, what? Relax. Okay, 
the Christians in the film are Jesuit Catholics. And so throughout the film, the, the physical object, uh, objects such as icons, rosaries, crucifix, they actually play a huge role in comforting faith communities. And so as Protestants or evangelicals, and that's not a dirty word, by the way, uh, we may miss this importance. And generally speaking, in the Catholic tradition, it's the priests, all right? They are the faucets, interesting enough. They are the faucets from which the church pours out God's grace to the Christians. This happens in a myriad of ways. It begins with baptism and then carry on through the, the, uh, the sharing of the mass and, and confession or the communion, if, I, if you don't know what I'm talking about, and, and confession and culminating in the last rites and the burial of the dead. So consequently, where there are no priests, then there is no church. Are you tracking with me? And where there are no priests, then there is no grace to infuse for either salvation of sinners or the edification of the believers. Hence the importance of having the priests. Now again, that's Catholic theology. Just work with me as you watch this, this film. And so we have these two young priests who are zealous for their faith. They really are. And they, they prepare to send out the, to set out to find Father Friera. And it's interesting when we look at scripture, we see that the book of Job starts out the same way as this movie. In Job 1, we have the main character who's blameless, right? Job. And you have Satan who comes to God and, and says, you know, the only reason that God, uh, Job serves you, God, is that you have given him nice things. You have protected him. You have put a hedge of protection around him. And if he suffers, God, I'll just tell you, he won't have the same faith as he has now. And if you have your Bibles, just jump to Job chapter 1 and look at verses 9 to 11 where it says, does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds and they spread out through land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. He will curse you to your face. And so the question behind the story of Job is, will Job still love God? And what will his faith look like, his faith look like if he goes through a season of intense suffering? And I'll say this, the same question is flushed out in this movie. Now, our priests have set out and they, they meet uh, Kiichiro, and he's a drunk fisherman, and it's an interesting little interaction they have. And he says very emphatically that he's not a Christian. In fact, he recoils at the suggestion that he is, but he agrees to sneak them into Japan so he can return to his family because he is Japanese. And so when they discreetly arrive on the shores of Japan, this is what they run into. Watch. So the church is still alive and it's practicing its faith. And you see, you see the, the zeal of these two young priests grow. And not only did they have the sense of fulfillment, but now they're struggling and, and suffering along with the others as well. And I love that they ask, how do you Christians, um, uh, how do you live as Christians when the danger is so great? And the response is, we pray in secret. And so we're introduced also here to the inquisitor, which is interesting, the one who purges the territory of believers, and he plays a major role throughout the film. So fathers Rodriguez and Grupe, they, they minister to the villages, only at night, only undercover, but they, they're still consumed with finding Father Ferreira, and they hear nothing on, on him until Rodriguez actually goes and he travels to a nearby island called Goto. And uh, he finds more believers and he administers the mass, the communion uh, with them. And uh, amongst those in Goto uh, who receives a fresh hope, a renewed hope, is their drunk guide, Kiichiro. And as it turns out, he's a Christian, but he remains racked with guilt for renouncing his faith some years ago. He was placed under the threat of death uh, and uh, he apostatized, he renounced his faith. And the way he did that is he stepped on a fumi, and, uh, which is a, an image of Jesus or some of what we would call it an icon, all right? So now again, if you're not Catholic, you don't see this as an issue, but the fumi is seen as something that's holy. And so if you step on them, if you mistreat them in any manner, it's a serious sin. It's apostatizing, it's defacing, it's rejecting Jesus. And so Kichirio's uh, uh, family watched him actually re step on 
the Fumi, but they refused to do the same, and so they were executed. They were burned alive, and he forced himself to stay back and to watch. And he retells this story to Father Rodriguez. He confesses his sins, and he weeps at Rodriguez's feet, and then there's this picture of Rodriguez granting forgiveness. And so by now in the movie, this, the, the persecution has now hit a fevered pitch because the Inquisitor and his henchmen, they hear news that there's Christians around and that there's priests around. And they show up at the village and um, they know the priests are nearby. They know the village has Christians. And so the Inquisitor gives the villagers three days to produce the offending believers and should they fail to do so, he will now take four hostages or four prisoners. And the faithful now, they gather together late at night. They're distressed. They're fearful. They begin to discuss their options. And four people ultimately volunteer themselves so the priest can stay. Kichiro is one of them. But he's more volunteered than volunteers, if you got what I'm saying here. Because he's not from that village. So knowing what's to come, knowing that they're all going to be asked to step on the fumi as an act of renouncing their faith, and they're, they're, they're shaken to the core. So they look to the fathers and they ask for pastoral advice. What do we do? What do we do? And oddly, you hear two different responses from the priests. Garupe, he says, no, no, they, they, they must not stamp on the fume. And Rodriguez, he actually disagrees. And believing that the symbolic gesture doesn't mean blasphemy, it's not going to do anything to you. So Garupe emphatically says, you need to pray for courage. But Rodriguez emotionally says, trample, trample. It's all right to trample. And then the time comes and the four prisoners are placed before the Fumi and they trample. But it's not good enough for the Inquisitor. His appetite is insatiable and so he makes them go the second mile and he pulls out a cross, a crucifix, and he presents it to them and he tells them, he says, you know, spit on the cross and say that your Virgin Mary is a whore. Well, three of them simply can't do it. Even knowing what they're going to face. The fourth, Kichiro, he spit, he swears, and he swiftly runs away. He apostatizes. And then now, in a very personal way, the suffering begins, and the persecution begins for the priests, because they now watch. They watch from a distance. They watch people dying to protect them. And I think this is what has probably fascinated me as a pastor watching what was taking place. This, I, I don't, I've never watched a movie so many times, and it's two and a half hours long as I've watched this one. And they watched these three villagers who remained, who, who, who are tied to crosses on the side of the shore where the tide slowly rises and then eventually drowns them. One believer hangs there for four days and he dies singing a hymn about paradise. And Rodriguez and Garupe watch from afar and, and we hear Rodriguez address God, praying to God, and he says, you heard their prayers, but did you hear their screams? And he goes on and he goes, how can I explain your silence? See, this film is about Christian persecution and, and one of which every Christian should see and never speak about Christian persecution persecution in North America again, if you're tracking with me. Because such violence against Christ followers isn't a thing of the past. It isn't just a movie. Over 320 Christians are killed for their faith every month. Often by similar methods that we see demonstrated in the movie, this film should stir us to pray and to act for what's going on in the world around us. And it's the first time I've ever seen somebody forced to deny their faith on film that actually has real weight to it. Because most of the time, you know, Christians are put in a position on film and and some sort of ridiculously contrived situation, a student stands up to his atheist professor. You know, it's a cheesy gimmick, really. 
that bears little resemblance to real life. But in silence, the moments of testing have gravity to them. And they're incredibly serious and poignant moments because Scorsese actually has done the hard work of creating complicated yet interesting characters that make for great storytelling. But the crazy thing is it makes you feel the emotions of the characters on screen and appreciate the consequences they face. And it may be fiction, but it is historical. Track it. And so without a question, silence takes the issues of persecution, it takes the issues of suffering and the silence of God in a way few films ever have. And it's so much more than that. It's a story about hard questions and, and the consequences of our response uh, uh, about the, the nature of truth, about grace, and perhaps most of all, the presence, the love, and may I say the goodness of God. The priests now separate. They go their own ways. And the film follows Rodriguez, who, in short order, he is captured by the Inquisitor. Why? Because our friend Kiichiro betrays him for silver. And as Rodriguez is being carried away, Kiichiro, he, he says, Padre, forgive me! Father, forgive me! And if you listen closely in the film, you, you hear some sort of bird crow in the background. And the remainder of the film now details Rodriguez's various trials and responses to those trials. And at times, he's, he's, he's constant. He's brave. You know, he, uh, like when he defends Christianity's universal truthfulness before the Inquisitor. Other times, his faith weakens. And eventually, Father Garupe returns himself on scene. And however, he refuses to recant to end the suffering of the faithful. He's presented with the option he chooses not to, and Garupe would rather run into a raging sea, and he does, and he dies trying to save some believers. As Rodriguez watches. Gitriel returns as well. Too many times. Drawing close, running away. Drawing close, running away. Asking for forgiveness, apostatizing. Asking for forgiveness, apostatizing. And I want to speak to that later. And so, Rodriguez is in prison, but he's, he's kept in relative comfort, so his body will betray his mind, interesting enough. He's able to minister to others, but their fate is wound up in his response. And slowly the rules of the game become very clear. If he apostatizes... If he denounces his faith, if he follows Father Ferreira's footsteps and he tramples on the Fumi, then his fellow believers will be saved from all the suffering. So why don't you just do it? It's no big deal, says the Inquisitor. But if you refuse, they will continue to suffer. And this wicked cycle occurs to offer no other outcome. And Rodriguez finally meets Liam Neeson, I mean Father Ferreira, and it's in this conversation that you see the struggle and you see the torment of what let Father Ferreira make the decision he made. And what happens now is Rodriguez's worst fears become alive. And in this scene that you're about to see, he comes face to face with his, face to face with his mentor and it's riveting and it actually raises more questions than answers, but let's watch it. You know, some of the conversations that come out of this are huge. You know, we live in a world of coexist bumper stickers, do we not? Sorry. And yet there are questions that are, are, are rampant in our culture today. You know, what does it look like to have a monotheistic faith that we serve one God that has universal claims and, and, and our beliefs that there is only one way for people in our world, even though there are many different cultures. Huge conversations here. And I think that the real narrative here and what's happening in this exchange is that Rodriguez's worst dream has come true. And we see the mental anguish and the torment that he's going through when he sees that Father Ferreira has actually left his faith. And again, it reminds me of the story of Job. Because the biggest question that falls in our lap is, what do we do when our worst fears are realized? Well, where do you get that, Jerry? Well, when that thing that you prayed for would never happen to you actually happens. And the questions that come out of that, 
when our worst fears are realized, and I've shared some of our own personal story, I'm not going to do that today, but when that thing that you prayed would never happen to you actually happens, what, you know, the essence of this film, and, and really it's also the essence of the book of Job. If you turn to Job chapter 3, he says, I feared what I feared has come upon me. This is Job talking. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. How many of, how does that describe even some of us here this, this morning? And the same is true in the film, and it builds this intensity from there. And Father Rodriguez has now been presented with a choice to apostatize. Just step on the Fumi. But he refuses to step on it. There's no way. And by his refusal, many Christians pay the price with their lives. And this leads to a moment where there's actually five people who are hanging upside down in a pit, and they're dying this slow and terrible death because Rodriguez refuses to step. And at one point, he's yelling to the believers. He's saying, just step on it. Just step on it. And he's told that these tortured believers already have stepped on it. And this is what makes the inquisitor good at their job. He goes on, he says, look, they're being tortured because of you. And part of the suffering that you know, that is taking place, uh, the Inquisitor knows that if he just kills the priest, then Christianity is going to continue to spread like wildfire. So instead, he has the peasants die until Father Rodriguez comes to the decision to apostatize and denounce his faith. Now, what you're about to witness is a, a decision that Father Rodriguez is about to make on behalf of the people. And in here, you will also hear what is known as the, I don't know if he really sounds like this, but it's the voice of Jesus. Okay, just throwing it out there. Watch this. For me, that's probably one of the most profound and theologically correct scenes I've ever seen. When you think about it, the, the reason that Jesus stepped into this world to begin with is to identify with us in our suffering, with us in our pain, with us in our trials, with us in our depression, with us in our darkness and hurts. You know, this is not the victorious message that we want in our, uh, our faith, right? Like, we, we always want, we want to be happy Christians, you know? Happy, happy. And many times as evangelicals in North America, there's this harsh reality of when people are, when we walk with people and you follow Jesus long enough, you know, Christ is going to call us to do things that people on the outside will never understand. Even those, even though some within the church don't even understand. And sometimes it will look like faithfulness on the outside, but it will be the very essence of faith when you're in the midst of suffering. And it's hard to explain this to people who have not gone through suffering themselves. And I think of some of you sitting here and the stories that we have shared together. But if you're going to grow closer to Jesus and you want to be near him and identify yourself with Jesus, there will be times, people, in our lives where we suffer. And we are even rejected. And we get the scorn of humanity. Why? Because Jesus himself didn't just suffer. When we read it in the New Testament, he suffered and he died alone and he was rejected. He knows. And questions of suffering are not easy, resolvable in philosophy or in theology at all. No, silence doesn't attempt to, to answer them logically at all, but it does present us with Jesus. And at various points in the film, and you saw it there just towards the end, we, we see this portrait of, of Jesus by El Greco, the artist, staring right at us into our doubts, into our loneliness and hopes and fears. And the deep, deep love of Jesus is right there in his eyes. And Scorsese said he picked this very picture, this image, because it seems to communicate to the viewer, I will not abandon you. How profound. 
And see, in Christianity, suffering is not a reason to abandon faith. Rather, suffering is a way into faith. And too often in North American Christianity, it's all about Sunday, right? When we don't do Bad Friday, we, we all want the Sunday resurrection experience. And we forget that part of the good news is that God is with us and not beyond us in our struggles. He is with us. And so to, to follow Jesus is to follow him in the way of weakness, in the way of self-giving love, in the way of silence at times. And it's, it's the way of, you know, quick to listen and slow to speak. It's the way of weak things shaming the things that are strong. It's the way of greater love has no man than this, than the one who lays down his life for one's friends. And we don't go looking for persecution. Don't get me wrong. Don't go out there going, hey. But if it comes, we meet it with compassion and the redemptive silence of our Lord. Because when we look in scripture, we see that the prophecy even says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. You know, silence makes reference to the famous old uh, quip that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And you can't watch this film uh, without being moved by the depiction of the faithful Christians being tortured and executed, being burned on pyres, scalded with hot water, hung upside down, beheaded, drowned, hung on crosses on the beach, battered by high tide. I'm still moved by many of these scenes. I'm still, personally I am, and I'm reminded of Jesus' words and the hope of Matthew 16, that whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And when we look at Job, and we see that he, he's called blameless through the entire story. But he has these questions for God. He has these questions about God. And his life is completely devastated. And if you haven't read Job, read the book. Start at Job chapter 1 in the Old Testament. And some of the questions that Job asks seem very profane on the surface. And some of his friends who come alongside him, they're saying to him, you know, Job, you shouldn't be asking those questions. You shouldn't be saying those things about God. Because they have their, their trite theological answers. They have their nice theological systems. But listen to what Job says in chapter 9. He goes on, he says, How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent. I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He's talking about God. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my words for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who could challenge him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It's all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. And he finally concludes with, when a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds his judges. If it's not me, if it's not he, then who is it? He is going off on God. And there are big questions here. And it makes it look like Job has almost lost his faith in, in, in a good and loving God. But, what it, but this is what it looks like to wrestle with the mystery of suffering and to grow closer to God in the mystery of suffering. And make no mistake, the, the unflinching question of God's silence is the dominant challenge that's going on here. And it is a challenge. Feeling betrayed by God is sometimes how we feel when we suffer. Feeling betrayed by God in his goodness and questioning these things at the height of our Christian experience and Christian service. Listen, people, it's actually common experience for people who have a life with God. We just don't talk about it. And it's not just Job either. As a matter of fact, if you begin to study other biblical characters, we could see that Jeremiah, Elijah, John the Baptist, many others had the same exact experience. And then let's look in modern times. Mother Teresa went through her own stuff. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of the times, even more recently into C.S. Lewis. 
And few Christians have ever chronicled their struggle with God's silence more movingly than C.S. Lewis. This guy was deeply in love with his wife named Joy. They met, they married late in life. Their romance bloomed. It was there not long after their relationship began. She's diagnosed with cancer. She endures a long, terrible season of illness before she dies. Their story is actually eventually documented in a Hollywood film called Shadowlands. You can probably catch that on Netflix too. But Lewis wrote about his feelings about, regarding Joy's death. In a series of notes, they were later all gathered together. They were published in a book called A Grief Observed. And this is what he says. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid. But the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness. On the rebound, one passes into tears and pathos, mauled in tears. I prefer, I almost prefer the moments of agony. These are at least clean and honest. Meanwhile, where's God? And when you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, and if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. I love this. Go to him when your need is desperate. Are you desperate this morning? When all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, the sound of the bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. And the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. And why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent in our time of trouble? The fact is, though, the silence is seldom permanent. And Lewis himself later writes these words. He says, I have gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. I was like a drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. You know, there's an aspect of suffering that we go through that is a mystery. And Christ is going to call us to be faithful in these things, even if you don't see him, even if you don't feel him, or see that he is there. The movie draws to an end, and Rodriguez is now living the same life as Father Ferreira did earlier, and he becomes a tool of the government. and He has to recant you know, regularly just to make sure that he is apostatized. And from the outside looking in, it appears that he's abandoned his faith, but it's actually way more complicated than that. And the last scene that we're going to watch is Kirichio. He comes to him one more time asking for forgiveness and confession. And again, you hear Jesus, Jesus speaks in this clip. Fascinating Jesus voice, but go ahead. Here you have Judas coming again to ask for confession. Notice he denied three times. Betrayed you, betrayed my family, betrayed our Lord. <clears throat> Remember how I wanted to address the fact that Kichiro keeps coming back for forgiveness, that he's weak, that he's... Cowardly, he apostatizes, you know, like it's no big deal, like it's just changing one's clothes. That's what happens throughout the entire movie. See, but I have a confession to make because I see myself in him. I don't see myself as this suffering priest hero. But honestly, sometimes just as a cowardly, miserable wretch, and I don't need a Tony Robbins message right now to say that. See, Kiichiro's re, Rodriguez is repulsed by Kiichiro's behavior, his, his exasperation, this compulsion to sin and to confess, to sin and confess. It's relentless throughout the entire movie. And at one point, Rodriguez looks at him and you hear him pray in his head. He says, how could you forgive a wretch like this? This is the father saying this, Right? And Kirichiro is at best Peter, maybe at worst he's a Judas, yet there's something uncomfortably real in his weakness. That we would act any differently in the face of any such unimaginable punishment. So his belief, his behavior, his life is one of, when you look at it on film, is constant betrayal, even when it's wrong, even when it falters, even essentially it's public, it's seen by all. Everybody got, knows that you can't trust this guy. 
And yet he still, he still asks for forgiveness. And I don't think we need to be very quick to judge this Judas-like traitor, but to see him as an honest portrayal of our own hearts. How many times have we stepped on the fumi of our lives? How many times have you and I stepped on the face of Jesus every day? How many times have we abandoned Jesus only to come back, right? And what do we do? We ask for forgiveness. And what does he do? And this is the beautifully portrayed through the whole movie right to the end. He grants forgiveness. My relationship with God is not based on my relationship with Christ, but it's based on Christ's faithfulness to me, period. I can approach the throne of the creator of the universe because of what Christ did for me and not because of how good my entire life is. The words of the hymn, Come Thou Fount, verse 3, become all more real to us. Oh, to grace, how debtor, debtor, Daily I'm constrained to be, let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But then the commitment, here's my heart. God, take and seal it and seal it for thy courts above. So where is God, people, when we suffer? Where is God in the silence? Why doesn't he break in? Why hasn't he been there the entire time? Those are normal questions. And the conclusion is, and we saw it even portrayed, that God is right there in the suffering with us. And when we're going through trials, people, when we're going through temptations, when the pain of life is so great and he doesn't feel like he's there or that we can't hear him or, you know, he's not silent. You got to remember, he is still right there beside us. And we can trust that because Jesus Christ himself stepped into this world. Richard Rohr in his book, The Mystery of Suffering, said the, the enfleshment, which means the incarnation, Jesus coming into human form, and the suffering of Jesus is saying that God is not apart from the trials of humanity. God is not aloof. God is not a mere spectator. God is participating with us. God is not merely tolerating human suffering or healing suffering. Rather, God is participating with us in all of it. Are you feeling it today? Are you in that place of your suffering? He is with you, even if it's silent. And maybe that's not the answer many of us want, that, that God is not always healing our suffering, but he is right there beside us. But that is enough, and that's what we all need. And actually, it's one of the primary points in silence, but it's also the primary point in the book of Job. That God knows what we're going through. He knows how we're suffering. And to me, I think it's important. Many scholars believe that Job is the oldest book in the Bible, that it was actually written first. And if that's true, then Job is trying to answer an age-old question. What does it mean to be a faithful person in the midst of suffering when your world is turned upside down? And what does it look like to live a faithful life and to wrestle appropriately with God in the midst of our struggles and trials? And it comes to an answer very clearly at the end of the book of Job in chapter 47, verses 7 and 8. Job, remember I said all of his friends have their airtight theological answers regarding God and their nice conclusions that they draw on their head, but that's not what God wanted. You look at the answer to who is the most faithful through it all. It says this, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Elphaz, the termite. And I love this is God's talking to this guy. He goes, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Job throughout the entire book is the one saying the truth about God and not his friends. And then he says to him, now take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job, sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. In other words, you need to confess. My servant Job will pray for you. I will accept his prayer, and I love this, and not deal with you accordingly to your stupidity. You 
have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. In other words, these religious guys around Job had it all wrong. And why does God want Job to pray on their behalf? Because Job is the only one who has a relationship out of that crew. Job's been wrestling with God the entire time and his friends have their preconceived ideas about God and for them, it's not really about a relationship. It's about keeping their theological system intact and the entire time, Job is wrestling with the creator of the universe himself and this is why Job has been faithful because he knows knows that God has been with him the entire time and he's been having a dialogue even in the silence and the suffering. And God knows what you're going through here this morning. This is not a happy, good-feeling message, but yet it's a happy, good-feeling message. Because he's with you, and Jesus is the perfect reminder of that for us. And I think there are so many things that we can take away from this film, but I think that learning to accept the mystery of suffering is one of the things that we have to wrestle with as comfortable Western Christians. You know, suffering can push us away from God because I've seen that happen with Christians. But God can also draw us closer to himself and that closeness may not feel like he is very close. But let me just say this, if you just hang on, if you just continue to wrestle, in fact, That's the biblical witness of tradition when you think about it. The name Israel, that name itself means one who wrestles with God. And all of this is a reminder that we as believers are called to show up and continue and to contend with God, communicate with God, talk to God, share our heart, share our thoughts as Job did, put it all on the table, to ask questions. You know, so that we can continue our relationship with the creator of the universe. And that is, is an important tradition that the church needs to return to. And it's not easy and it's not clear cut. It is a mystery. And I cannot tell you what faithfulness looks like or what it means to be faithful to the voice of Jesus in your own life when you're going through your stuff, when you're having that hard time because it is your mystery and that's how life works but I can share with you what scripture says stupid movie wrecked believers were called to imitate Christ who emptied himself he took on the form of a servant he humbled himself to the point of a cross. The cross is a thing of foolishness. It is, but to those being saved, what is it? It is the power of God. For when I am weak, what's the rest of the verse? Then I am strong. First Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have suffer grief of all kinds of trials and he was writing to the persecuted church he goes on to say though you have not seen him you love him even though you do not see him now you believe in him and you are filled what with an inexpressible and glorious joy in the midst of suffering corinthians says we're hard pressed on every side i love this but not crushed we're perplexed but not in despair we're persecuted but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Then he goes on to say this, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far ways. And in other words, your time of suffering that you're walking through is just a moment in time. So what do you do? You fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. And it closes with Romans 8.18, for I consider that the suffering of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in, in us scripture of encouragement and the movie ends with a great mystery as well it leads us to believe that Rodriguez is a Buddhist and he dies he's about to be buried and burned in the Buddhist tradition his wife's allowed to visit him privately 
She says her farewell, but then in the movie we see she slips into his hand a crudely made crucifix, ironically, and it's the same one that was given to him years ago by one of the martyrs on the beach. This movie Silence is obsessed with dismantling certainty. There's no way to know what's in another person's heart, right? Or to fully know somebody else's relationship with God. And and this movie is hard for the religious people because it subverts some of the the genres, you know? It it screams at us in the face. But for non-religious people, it's hard too because it forces us to see that everybody's faith has a sense of complexity to it. And this isn't a a fake spirituality. You know, if you believe in God, everything turns out great, which is some of the messages of Western Christianity. This movie says that you can believe in God and bad things might still happen. And then it asks, what do you do with that faith? I thought about that last scene and I want that to be true of my life as well. I hope that when it's all said and done, that what I'm clinging to is not my own faithfulness, but Jesus' faithfulness to me uh, because of the cross and his resurrection. That my, that's what my hope is built on. And, and though the ups and downs of, of, of life and the success and failures that I have and through the doubts and through the moments of strong faith, what I cling to simply is that Jesus being faithful to me and not all the ways all my works to him. And my hope is that I'm not hung up on the hurts and the wounds that have been put on me, but rather I'm focused on the wounds that have brought my healing, brought my peace, brought my reconciliation with God through the one who died for me, all through Jesus. And so that's my hope for life. And I'm not to cling to this list of accolades or a list of failures, but to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the resurrection that follows. And that is the hope. That is the hope we have as Christians. That is our gospel. That is our good news. It doesn't matter what we do. He's done it for us. And this film is about what it means to know Christ, the man of sorrows, the one acquainted with grief, even in our darkest moments of despair and pain. To believe in Christ is to believe in Emmanuel, God, with us. That's his name. With us in our weakness, with us in our doubt, with us in our depression, with us in our suffering, with us in our pain, and with us in our joy, with us in our excitement, with us in our celebration. We don't always hear or feel God. For us as heard people, I conclude with, he's with us. Oh, your head's with me. I, I can't share this message without one question, and I don't never know who comes on a Sunday, but if you've never made a profession of faith and you are at that spot, and you're like, I just need Jesus. If that's you, can I pray for you? Just put your hand up. Put it up, put it down real quick. I won't embarrass you, so I'll pray for you. Thank you. Got to pray for those who are in earshot from my voice that have been and are in the midst of suffering and for those who have gone through long periods of time, maybe even years, <clears throat> and they're even going through that time without even hearing your voice. I pray that you would meet them where they're at and that you would remind them that you are with us and that you're never silent. Our hope is built upon the fact that you sent your son into this world and that you know what it's like to suffer suffer, and that you are right here with us every step of the way. And whether we can feel you or not, God, whether we can hear you or not, that you are not silent. And I pray that you would remind us of the faithfulness of wrestling with some of the questions that we do have, bringing them to you because you want a relationship with us and that you're big enough to endure any question that we might have about you as long as we keep coming back to your feet and putting everything we have in our hearts before you. So Lord, help us to have the faith and the courage to do just that today, to come to you and to give whatever you have in our heart because we know that allows us to approach you. And may we realize it's not about our faithfulness, it's about the faithfulness of your son Jesus who did 
for us what we can never do for ourselves. So thank you. And we stake our hope and our salvation on the work of Jesus, on his life, on his death, his resurrection. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us to live his resurrection life in the midst of suffering because, because of that hope we have in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. If you lifted your hand, just take a form that's on the chairs or email the office. We just want to follow up with you, put some materials in your hand and just help you in this walk that you have decided to put yourself in. Stand with me. I'm sorry I've kept you so long. Brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold. And they, and, yeah, yeah. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving the blessing did likewise. Brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold on to the traditions that you have been taught. Go with your trust in the Good Shepherd. And may you love not just in words, but in truth and action, and love one another just as He commanded us. And may God be at your side, even in the valleys of death. And may Christ Jesus be at the cornerstone of your life. And may the Holy Spirit abide in you and tend to you with love and mercy all the days of your life. So now, soul, go in peace to love and serve the Lord and live the church. We'll see you next week.